Well, this morning, we are continuing our sermon series, Socially Acceptable, Six Sins That Are Okay. So you may be thinking, all right, a sermon series on sin. What a way to finish the summer, right? It sounds really marketable. I can bring some people in with this one. And not only is it a sermon series on sin, but we are especially trying to look at the sins in our culture that are socially acceptable. The sins in our culture that everybody is okay with. In this series, we're going to call out and address the specific sins that our culture, we've just come to terms with them. We're just cool with these things, even though they're sinful. And so last week, Billy spoke to the sin of gossip, this socially acceptable practice of talking about someone behind their back in a way that you wouldn't talk about them to their face. And Billy also spoke about the sin of slander, this practice of tearing others down with your words. And so this week, we're transitioning to the sin of consumerism. Consumerism. Now, a good follow-up in sharing with you that our topic is consumerism is to ask, what is consumerism? Because it may not be so obvious, and there actually are a couple different uses for this word. But what we mean by consumerism is the culture or ideology of excessive consumption of material goods or services. So this definition is from an economics professor, Stephen Coleman. Consumerism is the culture or ideology of excessive consumption of material goods or services. So when the professor says that consumerism is a culture or ideology, he means that consumerism isn't simply one action. Consumerism is a lifestyle, it's a culture, an ideology. It's almost like a religion. So consumerism is distinct, say, from gossiping, right? Gossiping is like this single, isolated action, sinful action. But consumerism isn't an isolated thing we do. It's a mindset for how we view and interact with the world. And this mindset leads us to, as our definition says, excessive consumption of material goods or services. The consumerist mindset encourages the purchase of goods and services in ever-increasing amounts. Excessive consumption. So here are a few slogans to illustrate. Here are a few slogans that have emerged from the consumerist religion. First, buy now, pay later, right? You've heard this, but if you think about it, it doesn't even make sense because to buy something usually presumes you've paid for that something, and yet we're told, buy now, pay later. And this next one is like it. Charge it. Just charge it. I know you don't have the money, actually, but hey, You do have this credit card, this charge card, so just charge it. And here's another one. Keeping up with the Joneses. You may have heard this. What we mean is, 
you got to get more stuff to keep up. You got to get better things. You got to move up. But wait, why? Why do we need to keep up with anybody like this? Well, that's just the way it is. More, 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 better, better, better stuff. This final consumerist slogan, bigger is better. Getting a bigger car, a bigger house, a bigger budget, none of this biggerness needs to be justified. It's just a truism. Bigger is better. Of course it is. I remember when I graduated from college 10 years ago this summer, my parents gave me some graduation money and I traded in my old car. So I was going to use that graduation money and the trade-in value on my car to get a brand new 2008 Honda Civic. Still out in the parking lot right now. It survived the winter. Civic 1, Father Winter 0, I made it. And not long after purchasing this car, I remember riding in the new Civic with a friend, and we happened to be driving past the Honda dealership where I got the car. And very nonchalantly, my friend pointed out the Audi dealership that was next to the Honda dealership. You know how it is. It's like car dealership alley. They're all in a row. And my friend said, yeah, this Civic CT, it's a nice car. It'll be a good one as you get your career started right out of college. And then you can move up to getting an Audi. Now, I don't even know if Audis are better or fancier cars. Like, this is not my thing. I'm not a car guy. But it's beside the point. My friend's comment assumed a consumeristic mindset. Of course you're going to move up. Of course you're going to get the bigger, better, nicer car. Like, that's just what you're supposed to do. No, that's consumerism. And we don't have time to go into all the details of the history of consumerism, but you can be sure that this mindset has not always been the way it is, at least as drastically. Best I can tell, it was around the 1920s that different industry leaders and marketers and advertisers working with psychologists, they started to convince us, the purchasing public, that you need the new model. And you need to maximize your spending power through credit spending. And you need to up your societal status by getting more and more and better and better stuff. And all of a sudden, the line between what we need and what we want started to get very blurred. Because there are things we need, right? Not many of them. Food, clothing, shelter. And then there are things we want, all sorts of things. Well, as consumerism has grown as a movement, more and more we've become convinced that our wants are actually needs. So when we're not making our purchasing decisions on the basis of wisdom, when we're not managing our budget based on God's leading in our life, and when we're not leveraging our resources for the sake of the gospel and generosity, 
That's consumerism. When we're finding our identity in our material possessions, when we're finding our value in our financial value, and when we're finding our purpose in accumulation, that's consumerism. And in order to hear from God as it relates from this socially acceptable consumeristic mindset, we're going to turn to 1 Timothy chapter 6. So if you have a Bible and want to follow along, 1 Timothy is towards the end of the New Testament. And many of you guys may remember Billy taught you a trick for finding and navigating your way through uh, Paul's letters. He taught you this trick, General Electric Power Company, right? Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians. General Electric Power Company. And then if you can just remember, after Power Company, TT, TT. First and Second Thessalonians, First and Second Timothy. General Electric Power Company, TT, TT. So we are in... First Timothy, one of the T's, the third T. Chapter 6, and we're really going to be looking at verses 6 through 10. So First Timothy, as I said, it's a letter from the Apostle Paul written to one of his young protégés in the ministry, Timothy. And Timothy needs help pastoring the church in the city of Ephesus. And so Paul writes Timothy to give him some help and give him pastoral wisdom. And in chapter 6... Paul is specifically addressing the issue of false teachers. There were some teachers who were teaching false things about Jesus and dividing the people. And so Paul starts to diagnose what's going on in the hearts of these false teachers. He says, they are arrogant, they are divisive, they are conceited, etc. And then in verse 5, Paul states that these teachers, quote, Imagine that godliness is a means of gain. In other words, these false teachers are motivated by money. They're trying to deceive people spiritually so that they can gain control over them spiritually and eventually take their money one way or another. You guys have probably heard of this stuff. It's still going on today. Call now. Donate to our ministry and God will bless you back in triple measure, right? False teachers motivated by money. Well, when Paul makes this point about false teachers, he expands on those thoughts and shares more generally about the dangers of the love of money and the beauty of true contentment. And so I'll read for us 1 Timothy chapter 6, verses 6 through 10. Brothers and sisters, hear the words of our God. But godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into the world, and we cannot take anything out of the world. But if we have food and clothing, with these we will be content. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evils. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. This is the word of the Lord. 
Thanks be to God. We hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal and that they are endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights, and that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. So written near the beginning of the Declaration of Independence, these words are probably the most famous and formative sentence for our country. The founders declare that it is self-evident that we are endowed by God with the right to pursue happiness. They argue that all of us, whether we know it or not, all of us are on this lifelong pursuit of happiness. And it is our right, King George, to carry on this pursuit without your interference. All of us, whether we know it or not, are on this lifelong pursuit of happiness. So what are you pursuing? And is it really making you happy? That's the question we want to come to grips with today. What are you pursuing? And is it really making you happy? Well, as Paul points out in 1 Timothy 6, and as we pointed out in my comments on consumerism, there is a common temptation for our pursuit of happiness to devolve into a pursuit of money and material possessions. But as we face this temptation, God calls us to a different kind of pursuit. As we navigate our consumeristic culture, God calls us to pursue godliness with contentment. Pursue godliness with contentment. A life lived in love and obedience towards God. That's what we mean by godliness. A life lived in love and obedience towards God. That's where true contentment, true happiness is found. And so the pursuit of happiness, if it is to actually lead to happiness, must ultimately be a pursuit of godliness. And Paul shares with us here two insights that convinced him of this truth. Two insights that convinced him this is the thing truly worth pursuing, godliness. First, contentment brings great gain. Contentment brings great gain. So these false teachers, Paul says, they imagine that godliness is a means of financial gain. They imagine that God is some sort of slot machine or genie in a bottle granting their every wish. And Paul agrees with them that they're right to focus on godliness. But godliness with contentment is great gain. Not godliness with a bunch of stuff. Not godliness with nicer cars, a bigger house, more money. No, godliness with contentment is great gain. In other words, godliness and godliness alone is great gain. Life with God, knowing his love, knowing his truth, that's enough. It's more than enough. It's great gain. Now, for me to say contentment brings great gain, honestly, I'm not very impressed by that. Because I've lived a relatively comfortable, well-provided-for life relatively free from suffering. 
But for Paul to say these things does mean something. Because he had experienced severe persecution and terrible loss precisely because of his commitment and service to Jesus. And so Paul can truly testify, God is enough. I've been beaten, I've been slandered, I've been imprisoned due to my preaching of the gospel. And yet despite all of that, Paul can still say, God is enough. Godliness with contentment, godliness plus nothing else is great gain. There's this famous passage of scripture in Philippians 4. Paul wrote the letter of Philippians from jail. And he's in jail because it was against the law to preach the gospel. And so he couldn't reach these Philippian Christians, and so he wrote them a letter. And in Philippians chapter 4, he writes these famous words. Not that I am speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Now that last verse, Philippians 4.13, it's pretty popular, right? I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. I can score a touchdown through him who strengthens me. I can lift that weight through him who strengthens me. I can get a better job through him who strengthens me. But that's not the context at all wherein Paul writes this verse. Rather, the strength he's talking about is the strength to be content regardless of whether or not he scores the touchdown, regardless of whether or not he gets the new job or whatever. In any and every circumstance, in circumstances of plenty and of hunger, I have learned the secret for contentment. Christ strengthened me. In other words, godliness a relationship with Jesus whereby he is our center, he is our strength, he is enough, that's great gain. So the question we face every day is, is Christ enough for you? Is Christ enough for you? No, I I need my children to behave and then I'll be content. Is Christ enough for you? No, I need a boyfriend, girlfriend, husband, wife, whatever. Then I'll be content. Is Christ enough for you? No, I need this success in my ministry or my work. Then I'll be content. No, I need this better job. I need this bigger budget. I need more toys. Then I'll be content. I need, I need, I need, I need. But do we really? Paul presses the point. He says, we brought nothing into the world and we cannot take anything out. Job put it this way in Job chapter 1, verse 21, a little more graphically. Naked I came into the world and naked I shall return. I came in my birthday suit. I'm going to leave in my birthday suit and that is all. All these needs 
they can never satisfy because they don't last. We brought nothing in, we take nothing out. So hold on to your money loosely. Hold on to your possessions loosely. Because in the end, however tightly we held on to them during life, they won't last. Only Christ, only our relationship with God, godliness with contentment is great gain. Paul was convinced of this, and so he pursued godliness like mad. Secondly, a second insight that drove Paul's pursuit of godliness. Contentment brings great gain. The love of money brings great loss. The love of money brings great loss. Let's look again at verses 9 through 10. Contentment brings great gain, but, verse 9, those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evils. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. Now it's important to note here that Paul does not condemn being rich in and of itself. Instead, he warns against desiring to be rich. Paul doesn't say that money is bad in and of itself. He warns against the love of money. So the issue is not, are you rich or not? The issue is a matter of your heart, your desires, your cravings. Are your deepest desires and ultimate identity Found in God or in your money, wealth, and possessions? That's the issue. And Paul says, despite the appeal of riches, despite the promises of pleasure and security that wealth holds out to us, in the end, it doesn't pay off. Instead, the desire for great financial gain leads to a fall a fall into temptation, a fall into a trap or a snare, a fall into many senseless and harmful desires. It leads to a plunge into ruin and destruction. You see, Paul says loving money is the root of many other evils. If you love money over people, leads to a lack of love for people because you've got to prioritize making money. You don't have time for them. If you love money over people, you'll use people to get money. They're just human resources, not humans made in the image of God. If you love money over personal integrity, You'll cheat. You'll cheat the government, cheat your business partners, cheat your customers, cheat your employees. And if you love money over God, you'll ultimately walk away from him too. 
It is through this craving for riches, Paul says, that many have wandered away from the faith. You see how the love of money is a root of all sorts of evils. Geoffrey Chaucer, in the Canterbury Tales, these fables written centuries ago, in the Canterbury Tales, Chaucer tells a story of three young men, three friends, and they spent all their time indulging in whatever they desired, whatever they could consume, whatever money could buy. And one night, these three friends, they found out that one of their other friends had been slain by death. And so the three friends decided that they were going to find death, and once they found him, they were going to kill him. So on their journey, the three friends come across an old man who says that death could be found under an oak tree. And the old man points him to the tree. And once the three friends make it to the tree, they don't find death. Aha! Instead, they find three sacks of gold. Now, with their minds having quickly forgotten about death, they instead put the love of money in their hands. So they decide to wait until nightfall, and under the cover of night, they would carry their treasure away. And while they waited for night to fall, one of the friends went back into town to get bread and wine, and while he was getting what they needed at the market, the friend decided he wanted all the treasure for himself. And so he picked up some rat poison as well. And he puts the rat poison in the wine bottles of his two other friends. Meanwhile, the two other friends plot to stab their friend once he returns so they won't have to split the gold three ways. They can just split it two ways. So when their friend returned from the market, the two friends follow through with their plot stab their friend to death, and then they celebrate by drinking the poisoned wine, and they die too. And the old man told the truth. All three men found death under the oak tree. The love of money and the religion of consumerism are waiting for us under the oak tree. And we've all been well discipled into this religion. This religion that says we are able to find our purpose and our identity in the things this world has to offer. But it's an empty faith and it leads to an empty life. So don't buy it. It's socially acceptable, it's encouraged, it promises gold under an oak tree, but it will ruin you. So what are you pursuing? And is it really making you happy? Consumerism, the love of money, doesn't satisfy. It doesn't provide a solid identity. It doesn't provide the stability of soul that we all long for. So instead, let's pursue that which lasts. Let's pursue godliness. The love of God, the truth of God, and the Son of God. Think of it, guys. Jesus said this of himself when he was on earth. Jesus said this of himself. The foxes 
have holes and the birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. In other words, I don't even have a bed. I don't even have a pillow. I'm homeless. You want to follow me? And Jesus ended his life with nothing. He was stripped bare. The soldiers even took his clothes and cast lots for them. They didn't have a grave to bury him in. They had to borrow one. His name wasn't written on the side of buildings. He had no earthly inheritance to pass off to his disciples. Jesus was dirt poor. And yet he was truly rich. Despite all the earthly goods Jesus lacked, despite all the suffering he experienced, Jesus was the most joyful, loving, free, strong, wise, gracious, and satisfied man who ever lived. And so our pursuit of godliness is ultimately one and the same with our pursuit of Jesus. This Savior who showed us what true contentment is. This Savior whose love satisfies. This Savior who is the one thing we truly need. He's enough. He is enough. Let's pursue him with contentment.